This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Book 3, Chapter 11. Summer was now over. The winter following, the plague a second time attacked the Athenians, for although it had never entirely left them, still there had been a notable abatement in its ravages. The second visit lasted no less than a year, the first having lasted two, and nothing distressed the Athenians and reduced their power more than this. No less than four thousand four hundred heavy infantry in the ranks died of it, and three hundred cavalry, besides a number of the multitude that was never ascertained. At the same time took place the numerous earthquakes in Athens, Euboea, and Boeotia, particularly at Orchomenus, in the last-named country. The same winter the Athenians in Sicily and the Regians, with thirty ships, made an expedition against the islands of Aeolus, it being impossible to invade them in summer owing to the want of water. These islands are occupied by the Liparians, a Canadian colony who live in one of them of no great size called Lipara, and from this, as their headquarters, cultivate the rest, Didymi, Strongyle, and Hiera. In Hiera the people in those parts believe that Hephaestus has his forge from the quantity of flame which they see it send out by night and of smoke by day. These islands lie off the coast of the Sicils and Messenes, and were allies of the Syracusans. The Athenians laid waste their land, and as the inhabitants did not submit, sailed back to Regium. Thus the winter ended, and with it ended the fifth year of the war, of which Thucydides was the historian. The next summer the Peloponnesians and their allies set out to invade Attica under the command of Agis, son of Archidamus, and went as far as the Isthmus, but numerous earthquakes occurring turned back again without the invasion taking place. About the same time that these earthquakes were so common, the sea at Orobii in Euboea, retiring from the then line of coast, returned in a huge wave and invaded a great part of the town and retreated, leaving some of it still under water, so that what was once land is now sea, such of the inhabitants perishing as could not run up to the higher ground in time. A similar inundation also occurred at Atalanta, the island off the Opuntian Locrian coast, carrying away part of the Athenian fort and wrecking one of two ships which were drawn up on the beach. At Pepherethus also the sea retreated a little, without, however, any inundation following, and an earthquake threw down part of the wall, the town hall, and a few other buildings. The cause, in my opinion, of this phenomenon must be sought in the earthquake. At the point where its shock has been the most violent, the sea is driven back, and, suddenly recoiling with redoubled force, causes the inundation. Without an earthquake, I do not see how such an accident could happen. During the same summer, different operations were carried on by the different belligerents in Sicily, by the Sicaliots themselves against each other, and by the Athenians and their allies. I shall, however, confine myself to the actions in which the Athenians took part, choosing the most important. The death of the Athenian general Caraeades, killed by the Syracusans in battle, left Laches in the sole command of the fleet, which he now directed in concert with the allies against Melai, a place belonging to the Messenese. Two Messenese battalions in garrison at Melai laid an ambush for the party landing from the ships, but were routed with great slaughter by the Athenians and their allies, who thereupon assaulted the fortification and compelled them to surrender the Acropolis, and to march with them upon Messina. This town afterwards also submitted upon the approach of the Athenians and their allies, and gave hostages and all other securities required. The same summer the Athenians sent thirty ships round Peloponnese under Demosthenes, son of Alcisthenes, and Procles, son of uh, Theodorus, and sixty others with two thousand heavy infantry, against Milos, under Nicias, son of Nicaratus. 
wishing to reduce the Melians, who, although islanders, refused to be subject of Athens, or even to join her confederacy. The devastation of their land not procuring their submission, the fleet, weighing from Milos, sailed to Europus in the territory of Graia, and landing at nightfall, the heavy infantry started at once from the ships by land for Tanagra and Boeotia, where they were met by the whole levy from Athens, agreeably to a concerted signal, under the command of Hipponicus, son of Calias, and Eurymedon, son of Thucles. They encamped, and passing that day in ravaging the Tanagrian territory, remained there for the night, and next day, after defeating those of the Tanagrians who sailed out against them, and some Thebans who had come up to help the Tanagrians, took some arms, set up a trophy, and retired the troops to the city, and the others to the ships. Nicias with his sixty ships coasted along shore and ravaged the Locrian seaboard, and so returned home. About this time the Lacedaemonians founded their colony of Heraclea in Trachis, their object being the following. The Malians form in all three tribes, the Peralians, the Hiraeans, and the Trachinians. The last of these, having suffered severely in a war with their neighbors, the Oiteans, at first intended to give themselves up to Athens, but afterwards, fearing not to find in her the security that they sought, sent to Lacedaemon, having chosen Tisamenus for their ambassador. In this embassy joined also the Dorians from the mother country of the Lacedaemonians, with the same request, as they themselves also suffered from the same enemy. After hearing them, the Lacedaemonians determined to send out the colony, wishing to assist the Trachinians and Dorians, and also because they thought that the proposed town would lie conveniently for the purposes of the war against the Athenians. A fleet might be got ready there against Euboea, with the advantage of a short passage to the island, and the town would also be useful as a station on the road to Thrace. In short, everything made the Lacedaemonians eager to found the place. After first consulting the god at Delphi, and receiving a favorable answer, they sent off the colonists, Spartans and Perioiki, inviting also any of the rest of the Hellenes who might wish to accompany them, except Ionians, Achaeans, and certain other nationalities, three Lacedaemonians leading as founders of the colony, Leon, Alcidas, and Damagon. The settlement effected, they fortified anew the city, now called Heraclea, distant about four miles and a half from Thermopylae, and two miles and a quarter from the sea, and commenced building docks, closing the side towards Thermopylae just by the pass itself, in order that they might be easily defended. The foundation of the town evidently meant to annoy Euboea, the passage across to Canaim and that island being a short one, at first caused some alarm at Athens, which the event, however, did nothing to justify, the town never giving them any trouble. The reason of this was as follows. The Thessalians, who were sovereign in those parts, and whose territory was menaced by its foundation, were afraid that it might prove a very powerful neighbor, and accordingly continually harassed and made war upon the new settlers, until they at last wore them out in spite of their originally considerable numbers, people flocking from all quarters to a place founded by the Lacedaemonians, and thus thought secure of prosperity. On the other hand, the Lacedaemonians themselves, in the persons of their governors, did their full share toward ruining its prosperity and reducing its population, as they frightened away the greater part of the inhabitants by governing harshly, and in some cases not fairly, and thus made it easier for their neighbors to prevail against them. The same summer, about the same time that the Athenians were detained at Milos, their fellow citizens in the thirty ships cruising round Peloponnese, after cutting off some guards in an ambush at Elamenos in Leucadia, subsequently went against Leucas itself with a large armament, having been reinforced by the whole levy of the Acronanians except Oeneidae, and by the Zacynthians and Cephalanians and fifteen ships from Corsira. While the Leucadians witnessed the devastation of their land, without and within the isthmus upon which the town of Leucas and the temple of Apollo stand, without making any movement on account of the overwhelming numbers of the enemy, 
The Acarnanians urged Demosthenes, the Athenian general, to build a wall so as to cut off the town from the continent, a measure which they were convinced would secure its capture and rid them once and for all of a most troublesome enemy. Demosthenes had, however, in the meanwhile been persuaded by the Messenians that it was a fine opportunity for him, having so large an army assembled, to attack the Aetolians, who were not only the enemies of Napactus, but whose reduction would further make it easy to gain the rest of that part of the continent for the Athenians. The Aetolian nation, although numerous and warlike, yet dwelt in unwalled villages scattered far apart and had nothing but light armor, and might, according to the Messenians, be subdued without much difficulty before succors could arrive. The plan which they recommended was to attack first the Apodotians, next the Ophionians, and after these the Eurytanians, who were the largest tribe in Aetolia, and speak, as is said, a language exceedingly difficult to understand, and eat their flesh raw. These once subdued, the rest would easily come in. To this plan Demosthenes consented, not only to please the Messenians, but also in the belief that by adding the Aetolians to his other continental allies, he would be able, without aid from home, to march against the Boeotians by way of Azolian Locris to Catinium in Doris, keeping Parnassus on his right until he descended to the Phocians, whom he could force to join if their ancient friendship for Athens did not, as he anticipated, at once decide them to do so. Arrived in Phocis, he was already upon the frontier of Boeotia. He accordingly weighed from Lucas against the wish of the Acarnanians, and with his whole armament sailed along the coast to Solom, where he communicated to them his intention, and upon their refusing to agree to it, on account of the non-investment of Lucas, himself with the rest of the forces, the Cephalanians, the Messenians, and Zacynthians, and three hundred Athenian marines from his own ships, the fifteen Corsirian vessels having departed, started on his expedition against the Aetolians. His base he established at Oinoion, in Locris, as the Azolian Locrians were allies of Athens, and were to meet him with all their forces in the interior. Being neighbors of the Aetolians and armed in the same way, it was thought that they would be of great service upon the expedition, from their acquaintance with the localities and the warfare of the inhabitants. After bivouacking with the army in the precinct of Nemean Zeus, in which the poet Hesiod is said to have been killed by the people of the country, according to an oracle which had foretold that he should die in Nemea, Demosthenes set out at daybreak to invade Aetolia. The first day he took Potidania, the next Crocilla, and the third Tychium, where he halted and sent back the booty to Eupalium in Locris, having determined to pursue his conquests as far as the Ophionians, and in the event of their refusing to submit, to return to Napactus and make them the objects of a second expedition. Meanwhile the Aetolians had been aware of his design from the moment of its formation, and as soon as the army invaded their country, came up in great force with all their tribes, even the most remote Ophionians, the Bomiensians and Caliensians, who extend toward the Malian Gulf, being among the number. The Messenians, however, adhered to their original advice. Assuring Demosthenes that the Aetolians were an easy conquest, they urged him to push on as rapidly as possible, and to try to take the villages as fast as he came up to them, without waiting until the whole nation should be in arms against him. Led on by his advisers and trusting in his fortune, as he had met with no opposition, without waiting for his Locrian reinforcements, who were to have supplied him with the light-armed darters in which he was most deficient, he advanced and stormed Agitium, the inhabitants flying before him and posting themselves upon the hills above the town, which stood on high ground about nine miles from the sea. Meanwhile the Aetolians had gathered to the rescue, and now attacked the Athenians and their allies, running down from the hills on every side and darting their javelins, falling back when the Athenian army advanced and coming on as it retired, and for a long while the battle was of this character, alternate advance and retreat, in both which operations the Athenians had the worst. 
Still, as long as their archers had arrows left and were able to use them, they held out, the light-armed Aetolians retiring before the arrows. But after the captain of the archers had been killed and his men scattered, the soldiers, wearied out with the constant repetition of the same exertions, and hard-pressed by the Aetolians with their javelins, at last turned and fled, and falling into pathless gullies in places that were they were unacquainted with, thus perished, the Messenian Cromon, their guide, having also unfortunately been killed. A great many were overtaken in the pursuit by the swift-footed and light-armed Aetolians, and fell beneath their javelins. The greater number, however, missed their road and rushed into the wood, which had no ways out, and which was soon fired and burnt round them by the enemy. Indeed, the Athenian army fell victims to death in every form, and suffered all the vicissitudes of flight. The survivors escaped with difficulty to the sea and Oinean in Locris, whence they had set out. Many of the allies were killed, and about 120 Athenian heavy infantry, not a man less, and all in the prime of life. These were by far the best men in the city of Athens that fell during this war. Among the slain was also Procles, the colleague of Demosthenes. Meanwhile the Athenians took up their dead under truce from the Aetolians, and retired to Nopactus, and from thence went in their ships to Athens, Demosthenes staying behind in Nopactus, and in the neighborhood, being afraid to face the Athenians after the disaster. About the same time the Athenians on the coast of Sicily sailed to Locris, and in a descent which they made from the ships defeated the Locrians who came against them, and took a fort upon the river Halix. The same summer the Aetolians, who before the Athenian expedition had sent an embassy to Corinth and Lacedaemon, composed of Tolophus, an Ophionian, Boreades, a Euritanian, and Tisander, an Apodotian, obtained that an army should be sent them against Nopactus, which had invited the Athenian invasion. The Lacedaemonians accordingly sent off towards autumn three thousand heavy infantry of the allies, five hundred of whom were from Heraclea, the newly founded city in Trachis, under the command of Eurylochus, a Spartan, accompanied by Macarius and Menedelaus, also Spartans. The army having assembled at Delphi, Eurylochus sent a herald to the Azolian Locrians, the road to Nepactus lying through their territory, and he having besides conceived the idea of detaching them from Athens. His chief abettors in Locris were the Amphysians, who were alarmed at the hostility of the Phocians. These first gave hostages themselves, and induced the rest to do the same for fear of the invading army. First their neighbors the Meonians, who held the most difficult of the passes, and after them the Ipnians, Mesapians, Tritaeans, Calaeans, Telophians, Hessians, and Oreartians, all of whom joined in the expedition, the Olpaeans contenting themselves with giving hostages without accompanying the invasion, and the Hyaeans refusing to do either, until the capture of Polis, one of their villages. His preparations completed, Eurylochus lodged the hostages in Catinium, in Doris, and advanced upon Napactus through the country of the Locrians, taking upon his way Oneon and Eupalium, two of their towns that refused to join him. Arrived in the Napactian territory, and having been now joined by the Aetolians, the army laid waste the land, and took the suburb of the town, which was unfortified and after this Molycrium also a Corinthian colony subject to Athens. Meanwhile the Athenian Demosthenes, who since the affair in Aetolia had remained near Napactus, having had notice of the army and fearing for the town, went and persuaded the Acarnanians, although not without difficulty because of his departure from Leucas, to go to the relief of Napactus. They accordingly sent with him on board his ships a thousand heavy infantry, who threw themselves into the place and saved it the extent of its wall and the small number of its defenders otherwise placing it in the greatest danger. Meanwhile Eurylochus and his companions, finding that his force had entered and that it was impossible to storm the town, withdrew, not to Peloponnese, but to the country once called Aeolus, and now Caledon, 
and Pluron, and to the places in that neighborhood, and Proscium in Aetolia, the Ambraciots having come and urged them to combine with them in attacking Amphilochia and Arcos, and the rest of Amphilochia and Acarnania, affirming that the conquest of these countries would bring all the continent into alliance with Lacedaemon. To this Eurylochus consented, and dismissing the Aetolians, now remained quiet with his army in those parts, until the time should come for the Ambraciots to take the field, and for him to join them before Argos. Summer was now over. The winter ensuing, the Athenians in Sicily, with their Hellenic allies and such of the Sicel subjects or allies of Syracuse as had revolted from her and joined their army, marched against the Sicel town Inessa, the Acropolis of which was held by the Syracusans, and after attacking it, without being able to take it, retired. In the retreat, the allies retreating after the Athenians were attacked by the Syracusans from the fort, and a large part of their army routed with great slaughter. After this, Laches and the Athenians from the ships made some descents in Locris, and defeating the Locrians, who came against them with Proxenus, son of Capiton, upon the river Caiconus, took some arms and departed. The same winter the Athenians purified Delos, in compliance, it appears, with a certain oracle. It had been purified before by Pisistratus the tyrant, not indeed the whole island, but as much of it as could be seen from the temple. All of it was, however, now purified in the following way. All the sepulchres of those who had died on Delos were taken up, and for the future it was commanded that no one should be allowed either to die or to give birth to a child in the island, but that they should be carried over to Renea, which is so near to Delos that Polycrates, tyrant of Samos, having added Renea to his other island conquests during his period of naval ascendancy, dedicated it to the Delian Apollo by binding it to Delos with a chain. The Athenians, after the purification, celebrated for the first time the quinquennial festival of the Delian Games, once upon a time, indeed, there was a great assemblage of the Ionians and the neighboring islanders at Delos, who used to come to the festivals, as the Ionians now do to that of Ephesus, and athletic and poetical contests took place there, and the cities brought choirs of dancers. Nothing can be clearer on this point than the following verses of Homer taken from a hymn to Apollo. Phoebus, wherever thou strayest, far or near, Delos was still, of all thy haunts, most dear. Thither the robed Ionians take their way, with wife and child, to keep thy holiday. Invoke thy favor on each manly game, and dance and sing in honor of thy name. That there was also a poetical contest in which the Ionians went to contend, again is shown by the following, taken from the same hymn. After celebrating the Delian dance of the women, he ends his song of praise with these verses, in which he also alludes to himself. Well may Apollo keep you all, and so, sweethearts, good-bye. Yet... Tell me not I go out from your hearts, and, if in after-hours, some other wanderer in this world of ours, touch at your shores and ask your maidens here, who sings the songs the sweetest to your ear. Think of me, then, and answer with a smile, a blind old man of Scio's rocky isle. Homer thus attests that there was annually a great assembly and festival at Delos. In later times, although the islanders and the Athenians continued to send the choirs of dancers with sacrifices, the contests and most of the ceremonies were abolished probably through adversity, until the Athenians celebrated the games upon this occasion, with the novelty of horse-races. The same winter the Ambraciots, as they had promised Eurylochus when they retained his army, marched out against Amphilochian Argos with three thousand heavy infantry, and invading the Argive territory, occupied Olpea, a stronghold on a hill near the sea, which had been formerly fortified by the Acarnanians and used as the place of Assises for their nation, and which is about two miles and three-quarter from the city of Argos upon the sea-coast. Meanwhile the Acarnanians went with a part of their forces to the relief of Argos, 
and with the rest encamped in Amphilochia at the place called Crinea, or the Wells, to watch for Eurylochus and his Peloponnesians, and to prevent their passing through and effecting their junction with the Ambraciots, while they also sent for Demosthenes, the commander of the Aetolian expedition, to be their leader, and for the twenty Athenian ships that were cruising off Peloponnese under the command of Aristotle, son of Timocrates, and Hierophon, son of Antimestus. On their part, the Ambraciots at Olpi sent a messenger to their own city to beg them to come with their whole levy to their assistance, fearing that the army of Eurylochus might not be able to pass through the Acarnanians, and that they might themselves be obliged to fight single-handed, or be unable to retreat, if they wished it, without danger. Meanwhile, Eurylochus and his Peloponnesians, learning that the Ambraciots at Olpi had arrived, set out from Proscium with all haste to join them, and crossing the Achelous, advanced through Acarnania, which they found deserted by its population, who had gone to the relief of Argos, keeping on their right the city of the Stratians and its garrison, and on their left the rest of Acarnania. Traversing the territory of the Stratians, they advanced through Phytia, next skirting Medion, through Limnae, after which they left Acarnania behind him, and entered a friendly country, that of the Agraeans. From thence they reached and crossed Mount Thymaeus, which belongs to the Agraeans, and descended into the Argive territory after nightfall, and passing between the city of Argos and the Acarnanian posts at Crenae, joined the Ambraciots at Olpi. Uniting here at daybreak, they sat down at the place called Metropolis, and encamped. Not long afterwards, the Athenians and their twenty ships came into the Ambracian Gulf to support the Argives, with Demosthenes and two hundred Messenian heavy infantry, and sixty Athenian archers. While the fleet off Olpi blockaded the hill from the sea, the Acarnanians and a few of the Amphilochians, most of whom were kept back by force by the Ambraciots, had already arrived at Argos, and were preparing to give battle to the enemy, having chosen Demosthenes to command the whole of the allied army, in concert with their own generals. Demosthenes led them near to Olpi and encamped, a great ravine separating the two armies. During five days they remained inactive. On the sixth, both sides formed an order of battle. The army of the Peloponnesians was the largest, and outflanked their opponents, and Demosthenes, fearing that his right might be surrounded, placed an ambush in a hollow way overgrown with bushes, some four hundred heavy infantry and light troops, who were to rise up at the moment of the onset behind the projecting left wing of the enemy and take them in the rear. When both sides were ready, they joined battle, Demosthenes being on the right wing with the Messenians and a few Athenians, while the rest of the line was made up of the different divisions of the Acarnanians and of the Amphilochian carters. The Peloponnesians and Ambraciots were drawn up pell-mell together, with the exception of the Mantineans, who were massed on the left, without, however, reaching the extremity of the wing, where Eurylochus and his men confronted the Messenians and Demosthenes. The Peloponnesians were now well engaged, and with their outflanking wing were upon the point of turning their enemies right, when the Acarnanians from the ambuscade set upon them from behind and broke them at the first attack, without their staying to resist, while the panic into which they fell caused the flight of many of their army, terrified beyond measure at seeing the division of Eurylochus and their best troops cut to pieces. Most of the work was done by Demosthenes and his Messenians, who were posted in this part of the field. Meanwhile the Ambraciots, who were the best soldiers in those countries, and the troops upon the right wing, defeated the division opposed to them, and pursued it to Argos. Returning from the pursuit they found their main body defeated and hard-pressed by the Acarnanians, with difficulty made good their passage to Olpi, suffering heavy loss on the way, as they dashed on without discipline or order, the Mantineans excepted, who kept their wrecks best of any in the army during the retreat. The battle did not end until the evening. 
The next day, Menadius, who, on the death of Eurylochus and Macarius, had succeeded to the sole command, being at a loss after so signal a defeat, how to stay and sustain a siege, cut off as he was by land and by the Athenian fleet by sea, and equally so how to retreat in safety, opened a parley with Demosthenes and the Acarnanian generals for a truce and permission to retreat, and at the same time for the recovery of the dead. The dead they gave back to him, and setting up a trophy, took up their own also to the number of about three hundred. The retreat demanded they refused publicly to the army, but permission to depart without delay was secretly granted to the Mantineans and to Menadius and the other commanders, and principal men of the Peloponnesians by Demosthenes and his Acarnanian colleagues, who desired to strip the Ambraciots and the mercenary host of foreigners of their supporters, and above all to discredit the Lacedaemonians and Peloponnesians with the Hellenes in those parts as traitors and self-seekers. While the enemy was taking up his dead and hastily burying them as he could, and those who obtained permission were secretly planning their retreat, word was brought to Demosthenes and the Acarnanians that the Ambraciots from the city, in compliance with the first message from Olpi, were on the march with their whole levy through Amphilochia to join their countrymen at Olpi, knowing nothing of what had occurred. Demosthenes prepared to march with his army against them, and meanwhile sent on at once a strong division to beset the roads and occupy the strong positions. In the meantime, the Mantineans and others, included in the agreement, went out under the pretense of gathering herbs and firewood, and stole off by twos and threes, picking on the way the things which they professed to have come out for, until they had gone some distance from Olpi, when they quickened their pace. The Ambraciots and such of the rest as had accompanied them in larger parties, seeing them going on, pushed on in their turn, and began running in order to catch them up. The Acarnanians at first thought that all alike were departing without permission, and began to pursue the Peloponnesians and believing that they were being betrayed even through a dart or two at some of their generals who tried to stop them and told them that leave had been given. Eventually, however, they let pass the Mantineans and Peloponnesians, and slew only the Ambraciots, there being much dispute and difficulty in distinguishing whether a man was an Ambraciot or a Peloponnesian. The number thus slain was about two hundred. The rest escaped into the bordering territory of Agraia, and found refuge with Silinthius, the friendly king of the Agraeans. Meanwhile, the Ambraciots from the city arrived at Idomene. Idomene consists of two lofty hills, the higher of which the troops sent on by Demosthenes succeeded in occupying after nightfall, unobserved by the Ambraciots, who had meanwhile ascended the smaller and bivouacked under it. After supper Demosthenes set out with the rest of the army as soon as it was evening, himself with half his force making for the pass, and the remainder going by the Amphilochian hills. At dawn he fell upon the Ambraciots while they were still abed, ignorant of what had passed, and fully thinking that it was their own countrymen, Demosthenes having purposely put the Messenians in front with orders to address them in the Doric dialect, and thus to inspire confidence in the sentinels, who would not be able to see them as it was still night. In this way he routed their army as soon as he attacked it, slaying most of them where they were, the rest breaking away in flight over the hills. The roads, however, were already occupied, and while the Amphilochians knew their own country, the Ambraciots were ignorant of it and could not tell which way to turn, and had also heavy armor as against a light-armed enemy, and so fell into ravines and into the ambushes which had been set for them, and perished there. In their manifold efforts to escape, some even turned to the sea which was not far off, and seeing the Athenian ships coasting along shore just while the action was going on, swam off to them, thinking it better in the panic they were in, to perish, if perish they must, by the hands of the Athenians, than by those of the barbarous and detested Amphilochians. Of the large Ambraciot force destroyed in this manner, a few only reached the city in safety, while the Acarnanians, after stripping the dead and setting up a trophy, returned to Argos.
The next day arrived a herald from the Ambraciots who had fled from Olpi to the Agraeans, to ask leave to take up the dead that had fallen after the first engagement, when they left the camp with the Mantineans and their companions, without, like them, having had permission to do so. At the sight of the arms of the Ambraciots from the city, the herald was astonished at their number, knowing nothing of the disaster, and fancying that they were those of their own party. Someone asked him what he was so astonished at, and how many of them had been killed, fancying in his turn that this was the herald from the troops at Idomene. He replied, About two hundred, upon which his interrogator took him up, saying, Why, the arms you see here are of more than a thousand. The herald replied, Then they are not the arms of those who fought with us? The other answered, Yes, they are, if at least you fought at Idomene yesterday. But we fought with no one yesterday, but the day before in the retreat. However that may be, we fought yesterday with those who came in to reinforce you from the city of the Ambraciots. When the herald heard this and knew that the reinforcements from the city had been destroyed, he broke into wailing, and stunned at the magnitude of the present evils, went away at once without having performed his errand, or again asking for the dead bodies. Indeed, this was by far the greatest disaster that befell any one Hellenic city in an equal number of days during this war, and I have not set down the number of the dead, because the amount stated seems to be so out of proportion to the size of the city as to be incredible. In any case, I know that if the Acarnanians and Amphilochians had wished to take Ambracia, as the Athenians and Demosthenes advised, they would have done so without a blow. As it was, they feared that if the Athenians had it, they would be worse neighbors to them than the present. After this, the Acarnanians allotted a third of the spoils to the Athenians, and divided the rest among their own different towns. The share of the Athenians was captured on the voyage home. The arms now deposited in the Attic temples are three hundred panoplies, which the Acarnanians set apart for Demosthenes, in which he brought to Athens in person, his return to his country after the Aetolian disaster, being rendered less hazardous by this exploit. The Athenians in the twenty ships also went off to Napactus. The Acarnanians and Amphilochians, after the departure of Demosthenes and the Athenians, granted the Ambraciots and Peloponnesians, who had taken refuge with Solynthius and the Agraeans, a free retreat from Oeniadae, to which place they had removed from the country of Solynthius, and for the future concluded with the Ambraciots a treaty and alliance for one hundred years, upon the terms following. It was to be a defensive, not an offensive alliance. The Ambraciots could not be required to march with the Acarnanians against the Peloponnesians, nor the Acarnanians with the Ambraciots against the Athenians. For the rest, the Ambraciots were to give up the places and hostages that they held of the Amphilochians, and not to give help to Anactorium, which was at enmity with the Acarnanians. With this arrangement they put an end to the war. After this the Corinthians sent a garrison of their own citizens to Ambracia, composed of three hundred heavy infantry under the command of Xenocleides, son of Euthycles, who reached their destination after a difficult journey across the continent. Such was the history of the affair of Ambracia. The same winter the Athenians in Sicily made a descent from their ships upon the territory of Himera, in concert with the Sicils, who had invaded its borders from the interior, and also sailed to the islands of Aeolus. Upon their return to Regium they found the Athenian general Pythodorus, son of Isolochus, come to supersede Laches in command of the fleet. The allies in Sicily had sailed to Athens and induced the Athenians to send out more vessels to their assistance, pointing out that the Syracusans, who already commanded their land, were making efforts to get together a navy, to avoid being any longer excluded from the sea by a few vessels. The Athenians proceeded to man forty ships and to send to them, thinking that the war in Sicily would thus be the sooner ended, and also wishing to exercise their navy. One of the generals, Pythodorus, was accordingly sent out with a few ships. 
Sophocles, son of Sostratides, and Eurymedon, son of Thucles, being destined to follow with the main body. Meanwhile, Pythodorus had taken the command of Laches' ships, and toward the end of winter sailed against the Locrian fort, which Laches had formerly taken, and returned after being defeated in battle by the Locrians. In the first days of this spring, the stream of fire issued from Etna, as on former occasions, and destroyed some land of the Catanians, who live upon Mount Etna, which is the largest mountain in Sicily. Fifty years, it is said, had elapsed since the last eruption, there having been three in all since the Hellenes have inhabited Sicily. Such were the events of this winter, and with it ended the sixth year of the war, of which Thucydides was the historian. This is the end of chapter 11.